Boy, what a huge issue and huge question. Do you know your place in this world? If you're a teenager, you're a young adult, you've got some maturity uh, of years going with you right now, do you know what's God up to with you? Why do you draw breath? Why are you in this world? And why are we, as a collective community of faith, as a church, in this world? It's huge. Uh, This coming Friday, which is usually a day off for me, I'm going to be spending all day at school. Uh, A lot of you know that I've been involved in uh, Rotary for a number of years, and uh, one of the projects that my club has going on this Friday is uh, a program that we take to one of the area junior high schools, uh, and we'll be meeting all day with 8th graders, presenting a program on choices. Choices like... uh, (laughs) You want to go with me? Uh, choices like, uh, should I do my homework or should I go to the ball game? And what happens when I don't delay gratification? When I always try to get gratification too quickly? Uh, what about time management? What about money management? And so on. So we're going to be spending a, a whole day talking with 8th graders about choices. And the idea is that there's a lot of information that they need to know. And they're old enough to begin to get it, and yet young enough to still do something about it. Because, uh, as you know, once you get in the ninth grade, man, you start having those grades really uh, count for you or against you, etc. You guys that are parents, you know, there are things that your children need to become aware of. You know it. They don't. And so you have to find those ways of communicating and exchanging that important information. Well, you aren't my children, and nobody around here calls me father. But there is something very important that I know you need to know. And it has to do with doctrine. Specifically, the doctrine of the church. And all I had to do was say the word doctrine, and a few of you began to yawn. And then if you missed that word and you heard church, the rest of you began to yawn. Because it doesn't sound that... Exciting, and, and frankly, if you've been around here for a while, you know, every time I get into subjects that uh, to the average person may elicit a yawn, I try to jazz up a title and I come up with these creative you know, uh, avenues of approaching. I'm not doing any of that this time. Because I'm assuming, and I'm asking, that you will be mature enough for the next few weeks to say, you know what? This probably is important. I need to find my place in this world. I need as a community of faith, as a church, to know what is God doing? What is it that I'm spending the hours of my life engaged in here? And so today, I'm specifically going going to cover the big story, the meta-narrative. I'm going to give us a big context for the next few weeks as we then begin to get more specifically into what the Scriptures have to say about the church, about the mission of Christ, about what He's looking to do with you in your place in this world. And so uh, I'm going to ask you, beginning next week and across the summer... Will you be here? Will you be here and be ready to engage your head and your heart 
with things that God might want to address? Will you have your Bible? We're going to be in the Bible uh, looking at a lot of verses, and, and it's, it's a doctrinal study. So we want to know what does, what does God say about His church? Uh, you might want to bring a pen and actually do some note-taking or something like that. And you go, oh, Scott, I just like to kind of sit, soak, and then get on my way. Uh, well, I think God's up to something different with us for these few weeks, and so I'm going to ask you to take it another level for yourself, okay? Now, at the end of the five weeks, if you say to me, boy, he made too much of a deal of that, and you've gone through the process of examination and consideration and uh, prayerful you know, looking at this matter, fine, that's where you came out on it. I can respect the fact that you went through an investigative process and that was a conclusion that you drew from that. I'll disagree with you. But I can respect the fact that you went through the process. But for those of us that won't even engage a process to determine and to discern the level of importance of something, uh, it's scary. I mean, what if God designed the church to be one of the most important experiences in your life, but you treated it like one of the least? What if? Say, so we can get so caught up in the moment, we can forget that there comes a day when I stand before a maker of this world, a maker of my life, and I give an account. Did I deem important what he deemed important? Did I spend my one and only life the way he called for me and envisioned for me to spend my one and only life? Very weighty, very important what we're going to be about over these next few weeks. And it's very countercultural, right? Because in our culture, everything is about me. In the church, everything is about we. In the, in the culture, everything is about what can I get. In the church, everything is about what can I give. In the culture, everything is about how does this impact my circumstances. In the church, it's all about the kingdom of God and what He's up to. So we're going to be countercultural for a few weeks. You up for it? Can you dig it? Yeah? Okay. So, the church, we're going to find out, is called the Bride of Christ. That implies that there is a level of connection and intimacy that we, His people, get to have with Him. Do you have that place in this world? The Scriptures say that Christ's presence, the church is Christ's presence in this world. In other words, He will choose to use your mouth. He'll choose to use your hands. He'll choose to use your feet. He'll choose to use your life to extend His presence to those that are around you. Are you for that? You understand your place in this, in this world in that way. And we're told in the Scriptures that the church is the means of Christ's mission in this world. Everything that He was about when He was incarnated in the flesh here 2,000 years ago, He is continuing to do through His body the church. Are you aware of that? Are you up on that? Is that how your one and only life is being engaged? Okay, today we're talking about the big story. I'm going to give you this huge context. I'm going to cover 6,000 years of history. I'm going to do it really quick. 
So let's hop on and let's go. In the beginning, God. And He created this world and all therein with intricate design and purpose. And everything is good. And it's characterized by this wholeness. Uh, Call it shalom. Peace. And then humanity staged a coup, rebelled against God, shattered the shalom and the peace and the wholeness of this world. And God then began a process from that point to today of restoring shalom, of reintroducing, reengaging Himself after the rebellion into this world and into our lives. And we're going to be talking about how He's been doing that through the ages. So, as you may uh, recall, along the way He decided to tap a guy named Abram who lived in an area called Ur. And he said, I want you to go to a land that you don't know anything about. And there I want you to be my man. And there I'm going to begin to establish a covenant with you and through you for all the world. And so we're in Genesis 12, if you're following with me. And he establishes this covenant that says, You and all of your descendants, which will be as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the shore... Uh, through you I'm going to bless this world. And I'm going to call this world to myself. I'm going to redeem. I'm going to restore. I'm going to renew this world. And Abram agreed and he accepted that. He said, but uh, just one question, God. I, I don't even have one child yet. And you're talking about me having all these descendants. And so there was this miraculous thing that took place after about 25 year wait. And Isaac was born to Abraham and to Sarah. And about 13 years after his birth, and he's the now heir of this promise, and and all this uh, multiplicity of generations is going to come out of him, uh, Abraham feels called of God to go to the mountain and offer up his one and only son, the heir of the promise, as sacrifice. You know the story. He gets up there and God uh, instead provides a ram for the sacrifice. And Isaac continues the promise. He has a couple of sons, one of whom is Jacob. And he hands off the blessing and the promise to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And they will eventually become 12 tribes of a nation called Israel. But before you get that far into the story, they're about to die of starvation. And so God works it out for them to come to Egypt, which at that time, worldwide famine, they're the only place that's got food. And he's worked it out for one of Jacob's sons to be the number two person in all of Egypt, number two to the Pharaoh, to the king, and his name is Joseph. And he intercedes on behalf of God's people, and he preserves their lives. And over the next 400 years, they multiply, 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 and they become a nation. And eventually, they're a threat to Egypt. Egypt enslaves them. And so God sends a deliverer, a guy by the name of Moses. And Moses says, set my people free, says the Lord. And Pharaoh's not exactly excited about wrecking his economy by letting all of his slave industry walk out the door. So there's this big battle between Pharaoh and God, and God wins big time. And they begin to miraculously cross this Red Sea. They go across this desertous area 
wander in the wilderness there. They take a little detour at the Mount of Sinai, get the Ten Commandments and all of the law of God. Then they proceed to the Promised Land. They get confused about a few things. They get rebellious about a few things. They have to wander for 40 years. Finally, God says, uh, there's a new generation that will trust me and follow me, so now we'll go. And he raises up a successor to Moses, a guy by the name of Joshua, and they enter this promised land, which also is habited, inhabited by enemies of God. And so there's this great conquest and all of these battles. You can read about that across the book of Joshua. And now they are in the land as God's people, which just happens to be at the crossroads of all the major powers of the world. If, if this great country wants to go to this part of the world, they've got to go through Israel. If this country wants to go to this part of the world, they've got to go through Israel. They're right at the crossroads of the entire civilized world at that point. Just where God wants them. So that God can be about His mission of restoring shalom, wholeness, peace within this world. Drawing hearts into Himself. Rebuilding relationship with humanity. And they keep forgetting that. They keep forgetting their place in this world. And so, there's all these historical books, books of Samuel, the books of Chronicles, the books of Kings, telling about how they're all up and down on this roller coaster of getting it, not getting it, getting it, not getting it, walking with God, rebelling against God. And so then God sends this whole series of prophets, and thus we have all these books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea, etc., 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 And these prophets are mouthpieces for God to say, repent, turn back to God, quit going your waywardness, get it. What is your place in this world? And then we come to this period where there there is no more prophetic voice because nobody's listening to God for a long time. And then God raises up a voice crying in the wilderness. A guy named John, who begins to say, The Lord's anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, is soon to come. And thus we're introduced via the Gospels to the person of Jesus Christ. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, long ago, just putting it in context, long ago... And at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So all of history has been bringing us to this point where He could supremely reveal Himself and communicate into our lives via the person of Christ, who is God, who Uh, thought it not too much to give up all of glory and come and clothe himself with flesh and be one of us so that he might best connect and communicate with us. John 1, 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We're talking about Jesus the Christ. And just to make sure that it's clear, along the way as he's talking to his disciples, Luke 24 tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That is to say, Jesus said, 
Hey, I didn't just appear on the scene. I have been involved in this from creation. I'm the one that started this whole thing. I was before Abraham and Moses. And he interpreted all of the story, all of the scriptures for those in the first century so that they could see Jesus' place in this world and thereby their place in this world. Their part of the story. And then he said, I'm about to go back to the Father and back to glory. You, in my stead, go and make disciples of all nations, all people groups, all language groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, training them, discipling them to observe all that I have commanded you, Matthew 28. And that's exactly what the church, the followers of Christ, began to do. Now, it started off with quite a bang, as you may recall. Jesus gathered his disciples around him and he said, No, here's what's about to happen and I'm going to die and it's going to be awful and you're going to be afraid. But I'm going to rise again and when I do, I want you to wait until my spirit comes upon you. And so it all happens the way he says. He dies a horrific death. He's buried. He rises again. And they go to this upper room and there they pray and they seek the Lord and they're there for like 10 days just praying and slash cowering. But then the Spirit of God comes upon them and we're told, we're up to Acts 2 now, that they go out into the community and it just happens to be, you know, Passover season. So there's all these Jews from all over the world that have come to Jerusalem and now for, for Pentecost, and in the midst of this, uh, from all over the Roman Empire, with all the various languages that Jews now speak all over the Roman Empire, they are now in Jerusalem, and Peter begins to tell them the story. And how God is now at work in the story in this present day, having just seen the atoning death of Jesus Christ take place. He unpacks the whole story for them, and the Spirit has manifested in this place in such a way that everyone miraculously hears the story in their own language. And so a multiplicity of languages is happening all over this arena while Peter gives this very simple, like, ten-minute message. And we're told that 3,000 began to follow Christ on that day. Now... They're all Jews. Still got a problem. Because God has been saying, I have made this covenant through Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, so that you might be a blessing to all the world, and yet all the history up to this point has made it still a Jewish thing. And now Christ has come, the introduction of a whole new covenant, New Testament, if you will. And the very first step that that takes place, keeps it still a very Jewish kind of movement. So move with me from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 10. And there we're introduced to a guy by the name of Cornelius, who just happens to be 
a Roman centurion. It's kind of like an Italian special forces guy. Okay, think Chuck Norris. Uh, you know, one of those kind of guys. He's, you know, one of these tough special forces kind of guys, but he's got a heart that's kind of open to God. And so he's trying to figure this whole God thing out, and God intersects his life through a dream and a vision. And you have to read the story to understand how incredible it is that God would move in such a special way because He says, I'm going to let you know what I'm up to in the universe and in this world and in your life. And I'm going to use a man to tell you all about it. He's over in Joppa, which is a coastal city. And he's staying in the house of a man by the name of Simon, who's a tanner. Now, I want you to send your men for this guy. His name's Peter. Now, he's not in Simon's house on this side of town. He's in Simon's house on this side of town. No kidding. The, the scriptures are that specific that that's how God unpacked this to Cornelius. And so Cornelius sends some of his men to Joppa to get Peter, right? And Peter is in the house of Simon the Tanner on this side of town. And he just happens to be having a devotional time, a time of praying with the Lord. And he's up on the roof of this house and he's just uh, kind of almost in a dream state. And he, he begins to see in vision-like form this like tablecloth coming out of the heavens. And on it are all of these animals that the old law calls unclean, things that Jews don't eat. And he's curious about this, and then he hears God speak to him and says, eat. And Peter says, I'm not eating any of that. I've never eaten this kind of stuff. I, I do not touch unclean animals, unclean things. And God says to him, don't call unclean. What I'm telling you is clean. And about that time, there's a knock at his door, and a bunch of unclean Gentiles are at the door. This is huge, friends. I can't tell you how huge this is because this is where you enter the story. All right? This is where we enter the story. These unclean Gentile Roman type guys are standing at the door and say, We're taking you to our master, Cornelius. And Peter's like, No, you're not. And they go, Yes, we are. Go, no, you're not. Yes, we are. And then it dawns on him don't call unclean what I'm making clean. So he gets some of his guys to go with him, and they all go over to Cornelius' place, right? And he goes into the home of a Gentile, something a Jew would never do. And he enters this whole realm of uncleanness, something a good Jew would never do. And Cornelius begins to ask him some things about God, and Peter begins to unpack the story about Jesus. And the Scriptures say that the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius... And he gets it, and he believes it, and he receives it, and his whole household does. And Peter says to those that he's brought with him, the Holy Spirit has come upon Gentiles, and they want to be followers of Christ. Can this thing happen? Should we not get water and baptize them? And his entourage says, uh, no, we shouldn't, because everybody will kill you if you baptize these Gentiles. He says, get the water. And he baptizes Cornelius and Cornelius' household who become Gentile followers of Christ. 
And the mission goes out to the Gentile world right here in Acts 10. You and I begin to have the gospel open to us because of Acts 10. Go over a few pages to Acts 15. News has spread everywhere. Peter hung out with Gentiles. Peter baptized Gentiles. And so they had this big council meeting, right? And he's in trouble. He's been taken to the principal's office. And they bring him in and say, tell us what happened here. And so he tells them, and I told them about Christ. The Spirit came upon him. I knew I should baptize him. And they said, just one question. Did you circumcise the guy? Because after all, you've got to become a Jew. <laughs> Peter said, the guy's 42. Are you kidding? No. You don't have to be circumcised to follow Christ. Where is that? That you've got to be circumcised to follow Christ. Christ never said that. And so they had this big theological battle at this council meeting in Acts 15. And they decide right then and there they're not going to make Gentiles become Jews in order to follow Christ. That's where we're in the story. And this movement of Christ begins to, to explode past just the Jewish community to all of the world, to all people groups, to all language groups, to you and to me. Thank the Lord. And this is around, oh, 39 A.D. So let's just get a quick historical... We're going to fast forward it now. 42 A.D., Mark, the writer of the gospel, goes to Egypt. 49 A.D., Paul takes the gospel to Turkey. In 51 A.D., Paul goes on another journey, and this time he goes to Greece with the gospel, starting churches all along the way, seeing people come to Christ all along the way. 52 A.D., the apostle Thomas goes to India, and there he begins to share the gospel. In 54, Paul goes on a third missionary journey along the way he's writing the book of Romans. In 174 A.D., Christians are in Austria. In 280 A.D., for the first time, churches begin to be formed and established in the rural areas of northern Italy. You say, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal to that point is that the whole Christian movement had been urban. It had just been in the big cities. And now it has gone out into the countryside to the pagans. You see, pagan simply is a word that means not urban. And so it would go out to the non-urban people. And it's spreading like wildfire. So that by the year 350 A.D., 31.7 million Christians are across the Roman Empire. That's 53% of the Roman Empire. Okay, you following the story? God is on mission. God is moving. God is at work to bring back shalom, to bring back wholeness, to bring back the kind of world that He initially created before the fall. And with the movement of Christ, He is beginning to saturate our globe with His people bearing His good news. 432, Patrick takes this gospel and this mission to Ireland. You know all about that because we get smashed over that every year and pinch people that don't wear green, right? That's what it's all about, right? No, it's about the mission of God and God's movement in this world. 
And then in 596, missionaries under the appointment of Augustine come back to England and try to reestablish Christianity in England. And over a two-year period around Canterbury, 10,000 people follow Christ and are baptized. And then 635, missionaries are sent to China. And then in 900, missionaries are in Norway. And then by the year 1200, the Bible, even though most of the world is still illiterate, the Bible is now in 22 different languages. Of course, it doesn't get mass-produced until the introduction of the printing press in the 1600s, but at this point, it's already being uh, translated into multiple languages so that the gospel can continue to spread. 1498, Christians in significant numbers are in Kenya. And in 1554... 1,500 Christians are documented in Thailand. And in 1743, a guy named David Brainerd, and if you don't know that name and if you don't know his story, it's part of your story, you need to read it, begins to take the mission to American Indians. And talk about incredible faith encounters and, and, and faith experiences. You need to know Brainerd's story. And then, in 1845, a group of churches, especially across the South, began to band together and form a mission board so that they could continue the the spreading of the gospel across America and around the world, and they were known as the Southern Baptist Convention. And then in 1872, believers began to come together in a small little rural area of West Kentucky, And there they formed what they called the First Baptist Church in that whole area. And over the next 40 years, that church planted six other churches. And in 1984, that church called me to come be their pastor. And in 1989, that church sent me to Redmond, Washington, to found and to begin what we call Meadowbrook Church. You begin to see where you are in this story. And somewhere since 1990, someone began to impact your life or some mailing piece or website hit or or, or something began to draw and connect you to this local expression of the church of Jesus Christ. And it's going to continue, friends, from us, around us, around the globe, because God is at work. And he has been at work all the way from the beginning. Everything has purpose. Everything has meaning. Everything falls under the sovereignty of God. And so, all of history, look at any government, look at any civilization, God was there, God's up to something. The wars that have taken place, the plagues that have befallen people uh, and, and various populations... Uh, the persecution that has taken place with God's people. Through, all of it, all of it, all of it is for the gospel. How did Christianity 
ever get out of Jerusalem to begin with. Because Stephen was martyred. How did Christianity ever get into this country that is now the United States of America to begin with? Because Puritans were being persecuted. And they said, let's go to that new world, that new land, and live for God there. All of it is under the sovereignty of God. All of it has His mark on it in some kind of way for His purposes of redeeming, restoring this world. Friends, your circumstances matter. This day in which you live, who we have as president right now, what the state of the economy is like, what kinds of international tensions are taking, all of it matters because of how God is at work around you, in you, through you. That's a big story. And I'm not just so ethnocentric that I'm talking about an American thing. Listen, by 2025... There's going to be 633 million believers in Africa. There's going to be 640 million believers in South America. There's going to be 460 million believers in Asia. If you don't already know, the movement has already swept through America, and we're now in the wake. We're now behind what God is doing and where God is moving. So if you're looking around, you're going, well, I don't, I don't see so much of what God... He's blown through. And we are now left behind to continue things that His Spirit has already initiated over generations, decades, and centuries here. He is at work. In 1900... There were 558 million Christians around the globe. In 2002, there were 2 billion Christians around the globe. In one century, there was that kind of multiplication compared to all the history up to it before then. This is why we're in the world, friends. To know Him and make Him known to others. Everything about our lives has to do with knowing Him and making Him known to others. Everything. Everything. Did I say it? Everything. You go, I don't know if I can buy all that. I don't know if I can swallow what you're trying to say, say today. Then this is why I need you to be with us over these next few weeks. I'm going to take you through the Scriptures. We're going to investigate it carefully and closely and see how God... I, I've given you the quick thumbnail sketch, overview of it all. Now we're going to go and dig in a little more meticulously so it's more clear to you what your place, what our place is in this world. Let's pray.
Father, we are a point of awe of who You are and how You have been and are at work today. And in this moment, we don't take it lightly that we get to be who we are here, now, for the cause of Your kingdom. So Lord, help us to see. Help us to get it. We pray for the impression of Your Spirit upon our hearts so that we get the gravity and the weight of it. And Lord, we confess we need Your deliverance. We've encumbered ourselves with so much stuff that we're hindered from being Your people as You've called us to be. So over these weeks, we need deliverance. We need You to help us get free from stuff and misplaced priorities. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.